the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we begin a new study in the book of Judges, we join the Israelites just after the death of Joshua, and they do start out well, obeying the Lord's commands. We'll pick it up in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. The title of the message is, A Good Start. The book of Judges. Judges. Wow. Judges is the title of the seventh book of the Old Testament because it revolves around these divinely empowered leaders who rescued Israel from oppression. They didn't become like kings, like hereditary rulers that passed on their reign. In fact, most of them didn't even judge or oversee the entire nation. But they were sent by God during specific seasons to rescue Israel from her enemies. Now, most of the judges, therefore, they were military leaders. They led military campaigns, not necessarily in their training at all. Gideon, of course, he had no training in any of that. And others were similar. But God raised them up in the middle of a military need. And so that was how most of them get their start. They will drive out Israel's oppressors. But due to that success, they often became leaders who settled the most difficult court cases, which is what you normally think of when you think of a judge. So they kind of became very similar to Moses and Joshua when they led the nation, where all of the hardest issues would come to them. And so the judges, therefore, kind of fill the void left after Joshua's death, where Israel had no central leader. Now, the book of Judges, it covers a total of 410 years of events, but some of those events overlap. So in this way, the judges weren't like Moses and Joshua. They only led certain sections of the nation rather than the entire people of Israel. So the total time in the book of Judges from start to finish is only about 350 years. And during that time, 12 men and one woman will judge the nation of Israel Eli and Samuel were the last two judges before Israel demanded a king, but their accounts are covered in 1 Samuel. So judges will only take us from the death of Joshua up to the death of Samson, the last judge in this book. Now, the purpose of the book of Judges is not just to bridge a historical gap from Joshua to the monarchy, to Saul and David. It's to answer a very important question. Because when we leave with Joshua... Who's Israel's boss? Who's Israel's king? The Lord, right? And now all of a sudden, when we get to 1 Samuel, they're demanding a king. And so 
Judges answers the very important question. Why did Israel want a king instead of judges or instead of just following the Lord? And why were those judges needed in the first place? And so we see the place of the book of Judges in the Old Testament. We'll look at that second question first. Why were the judges needed? Well, God had promised the nation of Israel that if they obeyed him, they'd be blessed. But if they disobeyed him, they'd be disciplined. Joshua warned them, we read at the end of the book of Joshua, he warned them not to compromise because eventually that would lead to direct disobedience. And while some did well after Joshua's death, the majority of the nation compromised. And so just one generation later, Israel went into idolatry. So the book of Judges shows that Israel's spiritual condition determined its political and material situation. That is unique to the nation of Israel. That does not work for the United States of America, all right? The United States of America is not a theocracy. It's not a divinely set up state. And the church certainly does not run it, okay? We are not a nation with borders and boundaries. In fact, in the church, there is no, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither bond nor slave, male nor female. And therefore, it can cross all borders and it can go everywhere. So this is something that's unique and specific to the nation of Israel, that their spiritual condition determined their political and material situation. Now, when the nation would turn to God in obedience, then God would graciously send these deliverers to rescue them from oppression. But when they worshiped the gods of Canaan, the nation came under the control of tyrants and invaders. So this is why they needed judges, because there were times when they would turn away from God, and then he would deliver them up to these tyrants and oppressors, then they would turn back to God, and then God would send them a deliverer. So that's why they needed these judges, these leaders who would set them free from their oppression and lead them back into the truth and into the light. Thus, the book of Judges gives all believers throughout all time, and what it means for us is it gives us a vivid picture of human depravity, that despite God's grace, mercy, and blessing, we continue to choose sin. In this book, we're going to see an entire tribe go to war to defend homosexuality. Very relevant. Very relevant to our current period. We're going to see an entire tribe go to war to defend rape and murder. We're going to see the idolatry of Moses' own grandson. And we're going to see how quickly Israel turned to other gods. And that's the flow of the book of Judges. It's organized along these cycles of blessing, sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. And then it goes all over again. But there's another problem. As the book progresses, as time progresses in Israel's history, Israel's plight worsens. The stunning victories of Deborah and Gideon are followed by the less decisive victories of Jephthah and Samson. And so by the end of the book of Judges, the stories of sin and all-out war depict the nation's desperate need for unity and order. The implication is that a nation led by a godly king wouldn't do these things and that they would experience prosperity under the blessing of God if they had one. And so this book also shows that Israel failed to realize her divinely intended goal without a king, that God was to be their king, which explains why Israel asks for a king, our first of these two questions. Four times in the book of Judges, we read this phrase. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Twice that phrase is paired with this phrase, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. 
So five times we read, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the logical connection here is that doing what's right in my own eyes, doing what I want, is usually evil in God's eyes, (laughs) all right? That's how all those phrases seem to work together. And the reason given why they did what was right in their own eyes and what was evil in God's eyes is because there was no king. So that judges rose to deliver Israel, but that that didn't solve the problem shows us that the answer actually wasn't an earthly king like Saul or even David. In fact, Samuel, the very last judge, was opposed to the concept of an earthly monarchy. The problem wasn't that Israel didn't have a king. The problem was that God wasn't their king. And so when we read that psalm in Psalm 20, why don't we turn there real quick, because I want to point out a couple things to you that are very interesting in Psalm 20. David writes this as the king later. And he says here, the Lord hear you in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend you. He's the king. I mean, isn't that his job? To hear their petitions, to hear their pleas, to defend them? The Lord is implied there. Verse 2, send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. Remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. David couldn't do that. The Lord, he grants you according to your own heart and fulfill all your counsel, give you wisdom. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God, not David's name. We will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all our petitions. Now, I love what he says here. He says, now I know, now know I that the Lord saves his anointed. That's he's referring to him because he's the anointed king. Now know I that the Lord will save his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. He says, I'm the one that needs rescuing too, even though I'm the king. And here he lays it out. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, and here it is. Let who hear us when we call? Let the king. Who was supposed to be their king? The Lord. And that's what David points out here when he becomes king. See, that's what Israel needed. So the book of Judges exists to show us that the only solution to our problems, to our world's problems, to any nation's problems, is Jesus' reign. That's the only solution. That's the only way we can experience his blessings. The only way we can experience his blessings now is to submit to his rule in our lives. We don't need an earthly king. Doesn't mean we may not have one, but that's not the answer to our problems. See, what's interesting about that mentality is that's the mistake the world will make in the tribulation. We need a king. We need someone who can be above all the pettiness and who can fix all our problems. We need someone who we can give all the power to, all the bombs to, everything to, that he can have the centralized authority to fix everything. And everyone, well, not everyone, some people will resist, but many will do so. We call that doctrine in the scripture the rise of the Antichrist. The world's man, who happens to also be Satan's man, We don't need that or any other earthly king. What we need is the king of kings. Amen? So this shows us its place in the Bible and its place in our lives. But it's not the only thing we're going to learn. 
We're going to see our own depravity and therefore our need each day for a Savior. You're going to read some of these stories and you're going to just feel sick to your stomach when you read about what's going on. But then you're going to also probably think about a few things that are going on in your life. You know, it's funny, as a parent, there's so many of those situations that have arisen in my life where I'm saying something to my kid and all of a sudden you hear that little still small voice in the back of you and just kind of going, funny, isn't it? I, I... You know, how many times do I have to tell you? Da, 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 da? And then you hear that gracious, gentle voice behind you going, how many times do I have to tell you? And you know, it, it just starts to come full circle where you realize, Lord, I'm like that. I'm like that rebellious, knuckleheaded kid who doesn't make good choices, who rebels against his father's will, who chooses things that are selfish and don't please the Lord. So we're going to come face to face with that and see our need for a Savior every day. We're also going to see that God must judge sin, but that He is incredibly gracious when we repent. We will also see God's patience, His love, and His faithfulness even when we are not faithful. And we will see what God can do with just one person who will fully trust Him. So, sound exciting? It is exciting. So... Before we dive into Judges, we need to point out one other thing. Judges is not like any other book we've covered before. There's been a couple times where in the course of Genesis to Joshua, we've gone out of timeline a little bit, a few times. But for the most part, we've pretty much had a straight line. Judges is not going to operate that way. In fact, Judges is going to hop all over the place. So what you have is three sections of the book of Judges. You have the first section, which is about the first three chapters, and it's just an introduction, really. It's an introduction to the awfulness of what happened to Israel. Then you're getting into the main chunk of the cycles of Judges. So chapter midway through three, all the way through the end of 16, you're going to get into the cycles of the different Judges. But then the last four chapters are two stories. And they kind of serve as almost like an appendix at the end of a book, two appendixes. And they are awful, tragic stories of the depravity that Israel dropped to when they forsook the Lord. So we'll carve it up into those chunks. So tonight we're going to start that introduction section. So chapter 1, verse 1, the book of Judges. It says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. So again, we are kind of almost picking up right after the end of the book of Joshua where Joshua dies. It is going to bounce back and forth in time over the course of this book. In fact, in these first three chapters of introduction, it's going to bounce a little bit back and forth there as well. But here we see that after Joshua died, that the children of Israel, they asked the Lord saying, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And these are those remaining pockets of resistance that Joshua charged the leaders saying, I am worried that you will not finish the job after I'm gone. Will you be faithful to do this? Because if you won't, God will discipline you. And they said, no, we will do it. And then he made a covenant with the entire nation to renew their commitment to the Lord. And we see that they're actually doing it here. Joshua was concerned with two things before he died, that Israel would compromise on taking their full inheritance, and that the consequences of that would be that they would be influenced by the unrepentant idolaters who remained in the land. So this is a good start, that right after Joshua dies, they go to the Lord, and they say, Lord, we made a commitment, so where do you want us to start? 
Israel does keep their commitment after Joshua dies and they seek the Lord how to take their full inheritance. And you know, that is the best way to handle a fresh commitment to the Lord. For example, frequently I'll hear about our men's conferences and you'll hear challenges to dads to lead their kids and to lead their families and, and husbands to lead their families and everything. And guys, you know, they realize they've been slacking. They haven't been being a good example. And, and so what do they do? They're all fired up and they come, you know, it's almost like, you know, boom, they kick in the door and they're like, everybody down at the table, it's family Bible reading time. And they wonder why everybody's all out of sorts. And we are that way, guys. We kind of think to ourselves, well, I made a commitment. I need to go for it. That's why God gave us wives to temper us a little bit. Can you wait till they finish dinner, hun? How about hello first? And so What's very important after you kind of have one of those really important moments with God, like you come to church or you go to a retreat and the Lord really speaks to your heart, it's not to put it off, but it's to seek the Lord about what next. What do I do with this commitment that I've made? And Israel is such a good example of this because they could have been all fired up by Joshua. Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Us too. Yeah, yeah, rah, 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 rah. And then who knows? They just go off in their own strength and do a bunch of stuff that maybe even God didn't want them to do. So really cool here that they seek the Lord about how to take their full inheritance. When you make a commitment to God, immediately act on that. Do not do nothing because that will lead usually to compromise. Because the longer you wait to obey, the easier it is to compromise. But seek God about how to do it first. How do you want me to do this? Because sometimes you might be walking in a situation where you can't just knock down the door and bull rush it you'll need to figure out and say, Lord, how do I be obedient to in this commitment that I've made in a way that pleases you and that allows me to be a blessing to others? Now, why did Israel have to seek the Lord about who would go up first? Why wouldn't just everyone fight the remaining people in their land? Well, God had told them that he would actually leave some of these idolaters in the land to test them, to see if they would trust him, and that it would be hard for some of them. It wouldn't be easy right away. It wouldn't be something they overcame immediately to see if they would continue to trust him. So while Israel did need to keep their commitment, they needed to ask the Lord about how to do so. And so the Lord, they seek him, and the Lord says, Judah shall go up first. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And so Judah does so. Verse three, and Judah said unto Simeon, I love this, his brother, come up with me into my, my lot, my inheritance, the land that they needed to finish conquering, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and then I'll likewise will go with you into your inheritance. So Simeon went with him. So teamwork is a good idea. And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. Now, it made sense to ask Simeon to help because Simeon's land, if you remember from our map, was right in the middle of Judah's land. Judah had like this big, huge section, and it was too much for them, so they gave Simeon a little circle of land right in the middle of Judah's land. So it made sense for them to work together. And I love that it says here that the Lord delivered them into their hand. Because whether their enemies outnumbered them, like when they first invaded Canaan, whether their enemies were weaker than them, it would always be the Lord who gives the victory. You know, I was, I don't know, maybe 17, something. And my parents had seen some behavior in my life, and I was really on fire for the Lord. And they'd seen some behavior in my life that they were concerned about. And as they pulled me aside and they said, listen, well, we're concerned about this. We think you're putting yourself in a position where you could stumble. 
And I remember looking at him going, what are you talking about? I love the Lord. And I'm, I'm strong and, you know, and I'm, I'm going to serve the Lord and that's not going to be a problem for me. Famous last words. They had a lot more experience with this than I did at the age of 17 and had been humbled a lot more than I had been at that point. It's easy to look at a situation that you've never struggled with before and think, well, I got this. When the reality is, is whether our enemy is strong or weak, anytime we have the victory, it's because of the Lord. And so I love that it says here, it was the Lord who delivered them into their hand. Now, Bezek is kind of an interesting place because the word Bezek means lightning. It's not far from Jerusalem in the northern part of Judah's lands. But what's interesting about Bezek being lightning is verse 5. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. Now, let's leave off the gruesome thumbs and toes part for a second. But Adonai Bezek is kind of an interesting name. Adonai sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's the word Lord. So this guy took on the title, the Lord of Lightning. Pretty pompous name, don't you think? What's even more interesting about that is the concept of who is the Lord of Lightning. Well, we know him a little bit better through Greek mythology as Zeus. This was most kings back then claimed to be gods as well. But he's claiming to be like Baal in the flesh, who's kind of like the Canaanite version of Zeus. The king of the gods, I am the man. This was a very prideful and very arrogant man. And so when they fought against the kingdom of Bezek, they found him there and they fought against him and they defeated his army, but he flees and they pursue after him. And when they catch him, they do something that is not in Israel's normal repertoire of dealing with enemies. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, cutting off the thumbs and the big toe was an ancient practice used to keep your enemy from being able to wage war, but still be your slave. Oftentimes, they would take soldiers, they'd cut off their thumbs, their big toes. And the reason they do that is because with cutting off the thumbs, you could still use oars or other things like working in the yard, but you would not be able to wield a spear or a sword correctly. Without big toes, you couldn't run or balance well, so you wouldn't be able to fight. So this was a common practice when you uh, don't get any ideas with your kids. Um, This is a common practice when you would wage war and defeat an enemy. Israel did not do this, though. So this was not Israel's normal practice because they weren't to make unrepentant idolaters their servants or slaves. So why did they do this to the Lord of lightning? Verse 7, and Adonai Bezek said, three score and ten, which means 70, 70 kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so God has requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem And there he died. Now, not only did this guy defeat other kings, and this is why he called himself the Lord of Lightning. I am the God of gods incarnate. Because he had defeated 70 other kings. And he had captured them, cut off their thumbs and their toes. And the word gathered their meals under my table literally means that they would glean or pick up the scraps that fell underneath his table when he ate. This guy had not only incapacitated his rival kings, he had humiliated them, making sport of their struggle to survive. And he had done that to 70 men, regularly finding his joy and laughter at their suffering. And how he confesses 
I'm reaping what I've sown. I did this, and now God has paid me back for it. Listen, every wrong will eventually be righted. You can count on that. Every wrong will eventually be righted. God is just, even if it seems like evil is getting away with it at the present. I can imagine that there are many people who wept and cried over this man's arrogance and his ugliness and his nastiness, his foulness for doing this type of thing to another human being, not just another one, but 70. And I imagine as the people just racked up, the victories kept racking up, some people probably wondered, where is God in all this? Well, he's there and he sees and he eventually brings justice. And so I would say to you tonight, if you're doing something wicked, and you think you're getting away with it, you are deceiving yourself. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, it says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. This guy mocked God. These were men that God had created in his own image that he made sport of, that he got his laughter and joy off their suffering and their struggle. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So, Lord, I pray for us as we travel through this book that we will not just start well in our Christian lives, but we will continue well and we will finish well. So that we can say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought a good fight. I have run the race. I've finished my course. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Strong on me will save. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.